Susan. Well, uh, yeah, so this key, Susan's absolutely right. On April 27th, uh, don't come here because we won't, we won't be here. Uh, come to uh, Shawnee Mission uh, Park, Theater in the Park. Susan's, we're so glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us this morning, especially if it's your first time with us. We're, we're so glad that you've chosen to, to join us this morning. Hope that you feel welcome here and that you get a chance to, to meet someone and say hello. I'd love to say hello to you after um, as well. So um, as we prepare to uh, look at God's word, um, I want to start our time uh, just by asking uh, God for help, and then um, we're going to read a passage of scripture and, uh, and then look at it this morning. So um, I'm just going to pray here as we begin. Father in heaven, it's so uh, wonderful to have a, a treasure, the true treasure that, it, that the Bible is, this gift of you revealing yourself to us in, in words that point us to the ultimate revelation of yourself in the person of Jesus. Um, even when this book says things that are hard to hear, when it says things that are difficult, uh, I'm, so th- I'm so, so thankful that you have chosen um, to enter those places of difficulty with us. And so this morning I pray that our hearts and our minds would be uh, open to how your spirit would be um, at work um, speaking to us through your written word, pointing us to the living word, Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, uh, I want to just begin by asking a question. Uh, just kind of, this is a little, uh, little trivia kind of question here. But, but what is the deadliest disease in the world? So what kills more people globally every year than, than anything else? So, so more people die from this than from HIV AIDS, from diabetes, from lung cancer, from car accidents combined, actually. If you take all those, put it together, more people die of this than all those things combined. So, so what is it? What is this most deadly disease in the world? And I know we have a couple of doctors here in our congregation. They, they probably know. Um, it's, it's coronary artery disease. Uh, according to the World Health Organization, uh, coronary artery disease the most common type of heart disease and, and cause of heart attacks is, is the leading cause of death globally. So if you look at the World Health Organization, they tally up causes of death across the globe. This is the leading cause of death. And, and why is it so deadly? Well, I think because most people have no idea that they have it, and they're doing nothing to fight it. And while there are symptoms that manifest themselves in the late advanced stages of the disease, people can show no evidence of having any uh, sickness for decades until actually really the first major symptom of this disease, which is is a heart attack. It's it's often the first and, and unfortunately the last symptom of this. Now the thing with heart disease is that it's largely avoidable through diet, through exercise. This isn't something without a, a cure. And this means that the deadliest disease in the world, it isn't some fast-acting, incurable disease. It isn't something dramatic. It's, it's a slow-moving thing that we know about and that we can prevent. And, and this means that the deadliest disease in the world is the one that you're not fighting. And, and actually, the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. The, the deadliest sin in your life isn't necessarily the most dramatic or the most heinous. No, no, the deadliest sin is the one that you're not fighting. The deadliest sin is the one that you're not fighting. That's the worst. It's, it's that thing in your life that, that you don't even care about anymore. The, the thing that you used to struggle with, but, but now you've just sort of given up on. 
So, so this morning, if you claim to be a Christian, and, and there's sin in your life that you're okay with, whether it's big or small, it doesn't, doesn't matter, but if you go on sinning deliberately, then we're in danger. And, and this morning's passage gives us a startlingly severe warning about the sin that we've stopped fighting. So I want to read this text to you this morning. It's found on page uh, 1007, 1007 in the Pew Bibles. It's Hebrews chapter 12, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. And I'd love for you, if you have a Bible with you or grab one in the pews, to, to follow along as we read this passage. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, page 1007 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to read verses 26 through 31 to start off with. This is what the author says. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know who him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know some of you probably felt in that moment, and I did after the first time I read this text, is it thanks be to God? There's a little question mark there for, for this, for this text? Yes, even for this text, when it's read, we say thanks be to God. Because the more severe the danger is, the harsher the warning, right? The more, the more severe the danger is, the harsher the warning. If you have a, a mother who has her child who's about to run into traffic or about to put their hand on a hot stove, it isn't kind of a soft, maybe don't do that. No, there's a shrillness and intensity, even a violence to the warning that she shouts, not because of how little she loves the child, because of how much she loves her child. And this is important to remember because this warning is directed at us, at the, the local church. The, this isn't about evil people out there somewhere. This is about people who are followers of Jesus, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be following Jesus. You see, many of us understand the danger of rejecting Jesus and the gospel, the, the good news about what Jesus has done but I think what we don't often realize is that there's two ways of rejecting the gospel. There's an explicit way and an implicit way. You see, many of us recognize the explicit way. I mean, someone just says, I, I've heard the news about Jesus. I just don't believe it. I don't want anything to do with it. Um, and maybe that describes some of you right now. And, and actually, if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here this morning, seriously. And, and thanks for your honesty of being one to say, look, I've, I've heard this. I, I don't believe it. We're still so glad that you're here this morning. And by the way, if that is you, and maybe one of the reasons that you're saying, I just can't buy this, is that you see so much hypocrisy in Christians. Actually, this text says that God agrees with you, and he plans to do something about it. That's what these verses are about, about dealing with people who claim to follow Christ and yet live in an entirely different way. 
And so if that is you, so just don't judge Jesus based on the worst of his supposed followers. So there's that explicit way, but there's a subtle or there's an implicit way of rejecting the gospel. And that's the way of slowly drifting away from Christ, of slowly but steadily over time becoming more and more and more comfortable with sin in our lives to the point where we stop fighting it altogether. We, we move from intentionally fighting sin, from doing battle with it, to a place of, of deliberately continuing in it, of inviting it in. And according to this passage, this, this text in Hebrews, one of the clearest indicators of whether or not you've really understood the gospel, whether or not you've really embraced Jesus, is whether or not you're actively fighting sin. Because you see, no one, no one starts off following Jesus with a plan to say, at some point, I'm just going to chuck this all. <laughs> no, one, no one starts off like that. With At some point, about 12 months into the future, I'm just going to say, I'm going to give all this up. No, no, none of us plan for that. Yet, the more and more comfortable we get with our sin, the less and less comfortable we become with Jesus. And we drift, and we stop fighting. And really, that could describe any of us. You see, the deadliest sin is the one that you're not fighting. So as we divide our time this morning, we're going to focus on two broad sections. The first is deliberate sin, and then we're going to look at deliberate faith. So first, deliberate sin. Last week, when we were, if you were here, we looked at the response, the right response to Jesus' work of, of drawing near with him in confidence. And this week, the author warns us about the, the wrong response to Jesus' work, the, the response of shrinking back, of, of ignoring, of rejecting him in deliberate sin. Now, this is one of those passages that I assure you that, that I dislike teaching as much or more as you like hearing it. These are not fun texts to preach. I'd rather go back and preach last week's message again. And we got to watch a clip from Frozen. I mean, it was encouraging. We were talking about confidence and assurance and, and getting rid of our insecurities and our doubts. I mean, I, I love preaching those texts. I really would rather just open up that message and let's just do that one again this Sunday. But fortunately, since we as a church take the Bible, the, the whole Bible, seriously, we don't skim over the hard parts. We can't. In fact, if you're reading your Bible and you come to a text like this that, you, that you'd rather say, I'm just going to skim through it, those are actually, a, that's a red flag to say, no, I need to, I need to stop and spend some time here. And this passage tells us three things about the dangers of deliberate sin says deliberate sin reveals a faithless heart. It's uglier than we imagine. And then lastly, it leads to a life of dread. So, so deliberate sin is uglier than we imagine. It leads to a life of dread. And, and first, it reveals a faithless heart. So look again at, at verse 26. The author says, If we go on sinning deliberately, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, if we're going to understand this text, what the author is communicating, we, we've got to first and foremost understand what does he mean by deliberate sin? Um, in the original language, the Bible, uh, the New Testament was at first written in Greek. And so in, in the original language, the word deliberate is actually the very first word in the sentence. It's given a place of prominence. He, re prominence. he really wants us to, to get this deliberateness. So, so what does he mean by deliberate sin? Well, he means sinning without struggling. 
It, it means sinning without being bothered by it anymore. This is text is saying that any person who claims to be a Christian, claims to follow Jesus, and yet maintains an intentional lifestyle of ongoing sin is dead already. And the sobering thing is, again, he's not talking about some people out there. This could be you. This could be me. Now, what he's talking about here isn't an occasional screw-up or, or the thing that you're genuinely doing battle against. It's not that sin that even though it happens more than you wish it would, it continues to drive you to your knees in repentance for, to God and say, I, I'm, I'm sorry and I'm trying to change. Help me. It, it's not those things. What the author is talking about is those sins that we've stopped fighting or, or maybe never started fighting. Those things that, that even though we know the truth, that we, that we don't even really consider sin anymore. That, we, that we've just accepted. It's those of us, and it could be any of us, who say, yeah, I know what the Bible teaches. I, I know why Jesus died. And, but you just, you just don't care anymore. You either ignore what the Bible says... Or you just kind of shrug your shoulders and think, ah, well, I mean, doesn't that, God, God will forgive me. Jesus will forgive me. But maybe not. And that's the warning of this text. So what are we in danger of becoming okay with? What are the sins that are in our life that we're in danger of, of stopping fighting I think there's a lot that, that, that we, we probably, because we've become so comfortable with them, we, we don't even think about it anymore, right? So uh, it's, it's April. Um, tax day is just a little over a week away. Um, how many of us just cheat a little bit on the taxes? Not a lot, right? But just, you know, I made a little extra money here. It's kind of off the books. I, I won't report that this year. Uh, what, about, what about copyright infringement? Students, have you, have you borrowed any ideas lately without giving proper credit and papers? Or digital piracy? I mean, uh, I bet none of us here would walk into Target down at Ward Parkway and, and grab a CD or a DVD and shove it in our coat and walk out. I bet none of us would even think about doing that. And, and yet so many of us are, are willing to take and download that same CD or that same DVD off the web. You know, just because you're not going to get caught doesn't make it not wrong. Anyway, I don't know if you know that, but, but just because you're not going to get caught doesn't make it not wrong. How much does food or alcohol control you? I know this is, this is a tough one to say right now, but, but how obsessed with sports are you? With the game? I mean, when the game is on, do, do you ignore other people? Do, do, do you ignore your kids even? Does a loss or a bad call make you an angry and irritable person? What, what about gossip that's sort of thinly veiled as, as, as a prayer request? Right? What about this compulsive shopping, a, a consuming just to feel good, not, not, not buying things that we need, but buying just for the sake of, of buying? Consuming it at such a level that, that we have zero margin to be able to be generous in our lives. How about envy, jealousy? <laughs> that moment when you visit your friend's new house and you just can't stop thinking, how, how could they afford this? How could they afford such a nice place? I, 
they, they, I can't stand how smug and happy they are in, in this new place. I wish I could have something like this. About like impatience, irritability. You're the person, you're constantly fuming in traffic. The cars just can't get out of your way fast enough and, and you're snapping at the, at the coworkers or, or your kids. And you're thinking, well, Bill, that's just, that's just who I am. I get things done and, and if people get in the way when that's happening, I can't control what happens next. What about the way you talk to your spouse? Not at the restaurant, but, but when no one else is around at home. How about lust? You know, oh, guys will be guys. You know, what's, what's just one, one extra look? And, and, and I'm sure that, that porn habit is, is, is under control. It's, again, it's, it's just a little bit. It's not, not that much. And also here is another, another thing. Just because 50 Shades of Grey is on your, your Kindle and no one knows that you're reading it, again, still doesn't make it not erotica, right? Just because no one knows that you're reading it. How, how many of you singles are, 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 are sleeping with one another? Show of hands? Just, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> but, but our mindset, right? It, it, every, everybody does it, you know, it's, it's not that big a deal anymore. I mean, maybe, maybe 30 years ago, but that's just life now. That's just what we do, right? Or, or, or what about self-righteous judgmentalism? And this plagues people no matter where you're at on the political spectrum, right? Whether you're, you're far on the left or far, or far on the right, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? The, the, and this is what that sounds like. I can't believe those closed-minded, backwards people, if you can call them that. I, I, how closed-minded can they be? Or I hate how these subhuman liberals are taking over my country, right? I mean, this vitriol that can come, this judgmentalism. Or, or what about the good things that we're leaving undone? What about laziness, procrastination, you know, putting off our most important responsibilities until last, and so we have almost no time to to do them well? We say, I'm too busy to serve, or I don't make enough money to give. You see, when our chief pursuit is comfort and ease, our greatest sins will often be the things that we leave undone. As, as a culture, one of our chief goals is, is comfort and ease. And when that's the case, some of our greatest sins will be the things we leave undone. Okay, Bill. Wow. That was a little more intense than what I was expecting this morning at, uh, at you know, 10.30 on a Sunday. But I told you it was going to be serious. I told you this warning was serious. But, but Bill, you're, you're probably thinking most of the stuff you're talking about, these are, these are just small sins. These are, these are barely sins. Most of us here do these things. I, I do them too. I mean, how do you think I can make a list like this, right? I, I know you. I know me. I know we do these things. But, but that's why this is so disturbing. That's why this warning is so sobering because the deadliest sin is the one that you're not fighting it's not the most dramatic. It's not the most heinous. It's, not the, it's the one that you are uncomfortable with. It's the, the, that's the one that will shipwreck your faith. The author says that if after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we go on living like we always did, we are in serious danger. 
He says there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Now, what he means here is it's not that Jesus' sacrifice couldn't work anymore. If you turn from your sin, he will always forgive you. But the author just spent all this time arguing in the previous chapters that that Jesus' sacrifice has rendered every other sacrifice obsolete, every other attempt at forgiveness. And once you have a life that's filled with comfortable sin, it rejects the only sacrifice that works. Again, it's not that Jesus' sacrifice can't work for you anymore. It's just he said, I don't want that one anymore. But the thing is, you say, I don't want that one. There's not another one left. There's not another way. It'd be like if you had some kind of rare tumor and there's only one surgeon in the world who could operate on you, who could really save you from this, but you don't want anything to do with her. I mean, there might be a hundred other surgeons who are willing to try, but she's the only one who has the skills to remove this tumor. If you say, I won't want anything to do with her, there's, there's no hope for you at that point. And and that's what the author is saying that we do with Jesus when we pursue deliberate sin. We say, I don't want anything to do with the one thing that can actually save me. And when that's the case, there is no sacrifice left. There's nothing left for us. You see, Jesus didn't come merely so that we could go to heaven when we die, but so that we could be made whole beginning now. When Jesus says, I've come that you might have life abundantly, it's not life abundantly someday later on in the future. It's beginning now. And if you're unconcerned about sin, it shows that you really don't want Jesus to make you whole. It shows that you really don't trust him. See, deliberate sin reveals a faithless heart. So second, deliberate sin is also uglier than we imagine. Well, you see this in verses 27 through 29. And here the author does something that he's been doing often throughout this message, this sermon. He makes an argument from, from lesser to greater. So he says, if Jesus is the greater sacrifice, then how much greater is the, is the judgment that comes when we reject him? Because all along the author has been showing, the whole point of this book is the author has been showing that Jesus is better, that he's brought about a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. And because Jesus is so much better, the consequences of rejecting him are so much worse. And and he describes the ugliness of deliberate sin with, with three pretty extreme statements. He says, deliberate sin tramples on Jesus, the Son of God. It tramples him underfoot, or maybe your, your translation might say it spurns the Son of God. I mean, literally the picture says, when we sin deliberately, we, we treat Jesus like a cockroach under our heel. We trample underfoot the Son of God. Next, the author says, when we go on sinning deliberately, we profane the blood of the covenant. Profaning means something, taking something that's valuable, something that's beautiful, and, and treating it as worthless. If, a good picture of profaning is if you were to, to take your wife's wedding dress out of the closet and just start using it to wipe mud off of your tires. You, you imagine the shock of that, to, to profane, to take something valuable, beautiful, and, and to use it for something that's worthless. His blood is here to sanctify us. Did you see that in the text? It says that also this blood that sanctifies us. Again, this language of sanctify means to set apart, to make us holy. The goal of the gospel is to make us like Jesus. That's what it means to to be sanctified, to become more and more like Jesus. Uh, The goal that C.S. Lewis puts it in mere Christianity is that you and I would be little Christ, that we would look like Jesus. And some have said this even what the word Christian means, to be a little Christ. And and anything less abuses his blood. 
our, our statement of faith as a church puts it this way. We, we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. That God's goal in his justifying grace is ultimately that we would be like Jesus, that we would be shaped into his own image. And finally, the author says, deliberate sin, it outrages the spirit of grace. And have we ever thought about something that, that we, that you and I could do, would, would actually bring the very spirit of grace, the third person of the Trinity, to a point of outrage? That hit me really hard this week. See, that's how ugly deliberate sin is. And in verses 30 through 31, we, we see the end result of deliberate sin is a life of dread. You see, these patterns of deliberate sin, they, they promise joy, they promise uh, ease, but they never deliver it. In fact, they only end up putting us in a place of fear. And the, t- the text says in verse 31, uh, 30 through 31, he says, For we know who him, him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, we are not going to live forever. <laughs> Just you didn't get that already, just hate to break you. We are not going to live forever. The death rate for all of us is 100%. I mean, whether it's tomorrow or it's 60 years from now, all of us in this room will die at some point. And when we do, Hebrews is clear that we will face judgment. Now, for most of us living in, in the 21st century in the West, that idea seems repulsive. <laughs> it seems backwards. And it kind of the reaction is, you, you can't be serious, right? It, this is so backwards that, that there's a God that if he exists, that would somehow want to judge us. If God does exist, he's a God of, of love, not a God of wrath. I just, I can't believe in a loving God would, would also be judging or vengeful, right? And this is, this is the mindset that we, that we come to the Bible with. But I love how, again, we, I think we quoted him last week, but, but Yale uh, Divinity School professor Miroslav Volf uh, he used to have that perspective of a loving God couldn't possibly be wrathful. And then he tells of how he came to a different point of view. He describes how his thinking changed after witnessing the horrors of war in his home country of Yugoslavia. He's from Yugoslavia during the ethnic cleansing there. How his view changed after he saw the genocide in Rwanda where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. This is what he writes. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Vol says, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful, he says, in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now listen, in, in case you've missed it, I don't believe that, that a Christian can lose their salvation. Nor does the Bible teach that the way that you are rescued from your sin is by keeping all the rules or by the right things you do. So so those are not the two things I'm saying. But Hebrews makes it clear that there are people who think that they are Christians who aren't, 
who think that they've understood the gospel, who think that they get what this book says, but have missed it. And he's warning us, this could be you. Now, I'm thankful that verse 31 isn't the end of this text, but, but I want to pause here before we go on further in the message because he says, if you continue in this lifestyle of unrepentant sin, it doesn't matter what prayer you prayed or, or how often you come to church, the God you believe in is no God of all, and he can't save you. This is a hard text to hear. And before we look at how this passage ends, and and I'm thankful that the text doesn't end here, and I'm thankful the sermon isn't going to end here. But before we go on, I want to pause, and I want to take a moment just to reflect on what we've heard. Because I don't want to rush past the seriousness of this warning. And so I just want to take a moment to reflect over a few questions, and I'm going to put them up over this, on the screen here, and we're just going to take a few minutes. We don't usually do this, but we're actually just going to pause right in the middle of the sermon, and, and I just want us to have a chance to reflect on these questions. Um, John's going to lead us in a, in a song um, just to listen to for a moment. And what we're going to do is we're just going to pray quietly. And so um, these questions on the screen are, what sins have you given up fighting, and why? And what does Jesus want you to do about it. So we're just going to take a moment, about a minute of silence, and then John's going to play uh, a song for us just to reflect on while we do that. Okay, deep breath. Um, No one wants to be what was described in those previous verses, in in, in those previous verses, but thankfully there is hope, and, and it comes through deliberate faith. He said, this is not where this text ends. It's not where the sermon is going to end. And, and I love, actually, if you go back to that very first verse, he says, if, if you go on sinning deliberately, which, which means that it's not too late. It's not too late to change course. And, and in fact, if you look at the very end of this text in verse 39, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but th- we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, this isn't you yet. You are those who have faith, who are preserving your souls. You haven't shrunk back. And so we can still yet pursue a deliberate faith. And we we can avoid the dread of deliberate sin. Okay, so what does that look like? What does it look like to have a deliberate faith? We see a number of things here. First, a deliberate faith, it embraces the cost with true joy. Look at what the author writes in verses 32 through 34. He says, But recall the former days when you were enlightened, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partner with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the author is saying to these ancient Christians, remember what it was like when you first started to follow Jesus. Remember the suffering you faced and how that actually was a place of joy in your life. If you remember when we said way back at the beginning of this book, this this group of Christians, they become complacent. He says, remember at the beginning what it was like. Remember the joy you had even in the midst of suffering. Remember when Jesus was more valuable to you than anything else, more valuable than your reputation, your possessions, your comfort, your property. You esteemed him higher than all of those things. Remember that place. Go back to that place. 
Now, for many Christians around the world today, these costs are, are what they face all the time when they choose to follow Jesus. I think of our, our partners in, in Iran, Elam Ministries, who we work with. So many Christians in Iran daily face these very real kinds of things of being placed in prison and their property being plundered and all the rest. They understand this moment of counting the cost of following Jesus. But, but I think for us, that have we really counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? The, the changes that declaring that Jesus is, is Savior and Master of my life, what, what changes would that mean for me? I, I don't think we often really count that cost. And I don't even know if when we explain the gospel to people, if we, if we explain the, the, the cost that comes with that. Now, now, in the end, the, the reward, the glory of Jesus, it pales in comparison to the, the, the cost, right? Is, is nothing. But it is a cost. And you see, if our primary goal in life is to be happy, the pursuit of comfort and ease and satisfaction of our desires, we will never change. If our primary goal is to be happy, we will never change because you'll never become the person you were created to be. You will never know the satisfaction of a life which is better than, than personal gratification because oftentimes the formation that takes place in our lives comes through suffering. And if we avoid suffering at all cost, if we avoid it to the point where we only seek comfort, we will never be who God created us to be. You see, the only way that we will fight against our sin is we are willing to engage in the hard work of suffering. Because fighting sin is hard, and it feels like a death at some points. But if we don't have a category for suffering, then we're never going to be able to do the hard work of really battling against sin. Not in our own power, the Spirit working in us. Yes, all that is true, but there will be times when it will feel like a battle. And people who love comfort don't engage in battle. So a deliberate true faith embraces the cost of following Jesus. Second, a deliberate faith, it endures in confidence. And did you notice the confidence language here again in verse 35? It says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is uh, promised. We talked a lot about confidence last week. Confidence is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. Confidence here is the idea of public boldness, of identifying with Christ. A deliberate faith is marked with a growing, humble confidence and assurance in Jesus that gives you the strength that you need to endure. See, confidence makes all the difference when it comes to endurance. One of the things that, that I've done in the course of my life just for, for exercise is to, to train to run um, marathons and half marathons. And what you learn in distance running, when, if, you're, if you train for a race like this, you know that, that confidence in, in your ability to be able to finish the race is everything, especially in the difficult parts. When you're in the race and you get to, to mile 11 or you get to mile 17 and it seems like I just can't go on, your confidence that, yes, I've trained for this, I can make it, I can go on, makes the, all the difference between giving up and stopping and dropping out and, and continuing to press through. And, and what the author is saying is the only way we will endure the suffering we experience as Christians is by clinging to the confidence that we have in Jesus. 
He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's the forerunner. He's gone before us. He is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls who keeps us from drifting into death. We can have confidence in him. So even in the moments when it seems like we're never going to see the other side of this temptation, when we're never going to see the other side of this, this suffering, that we have confidence so that we can endure. So cling to Christ. Cling to him. Don't throw away your confidence in him. The reward is so great. And finally, a deliberate faith treasures what is truly valuable. You see, we can only embrace the cost with joy. We can only endure in confidence if we treasure what is truly valuable. The great reward that the author mentioned in verse 35, he says this, this confidence has a great reward. And then in verse 36, he says that if you, if you do this to the end, then you will receive this promise, what is promised. And in verses 37 and 38, tell us that the son, the son is returning. Jesus is coming back. All suffering, possessions, etc. These are all temporary if Jesus is truly returning. And the life of deliberate faith orients itself around this truth, and it's radically reward-focused. Let me say that again. The life of deliberate faith is radically reward-focused. You, you see, Christians don't just persevere because obedience is right. They do so because it's better. They don't just persevere in obedience because it's right. They do so because it's better, because it leads to the best thing. For example, if we see, here's, the, here's the thing. You will never battle sin in your, your life if it's only based on fear of judgment. Fear of judgment is never enough to conquer those things in your life. It's got to be radically reward-focused. For example, look into chapter 11. If you look forward just a, a few verses into chapter 11, this, the author says, By faith Moses, one of the great heroes of the people of Israel, by faith Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, there's that suffering, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. How did Moses endure? How did he choose to be mistreated rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Not because in fearing what God would do if he didn't, but by looking to a greater pleasure, by looking to a greater reward. This is even true of Jesus, right? Even Jesus, we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 12, it's going to say that how did Jesus endure the cross? By focusing on the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You see, Christians are not somehow these spiritual masochists who somehow find gratification in meeting in suffering for its own sake. Not at all. Christians endure suffering with joy because they look beyond it to the one who is their great reward. Jesus is the great reward. He is the better possession. He is the great promise. He is the one who has saved you, who's rescued you, washed you, redeemed you, purified you, who's, who's crafted a new heavens and new earth in which he desires to live with you forever. There's no greater reward than that. He's the one who satisfies your deepest longings and whom you find rest for your souls. Treasure what is truly valuable. Look to the one who is your great reward, and then you will find joy even in the midst of the most difficult suffering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm, I'm thankful for the promise that we are not of those 
who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who, who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a heavy text, and I pray that where there needs to be a light shine in these dark corners of our lives, that you would do that, and then that we would look to the great reward of Jesus, and that in, in doing that, these places, these deliberate sins, these places of comfortable sin in our lives would just lose their power and fall away, and that we would rejoice in the one who has saved us, who is doing everything in the world, who has literally moved heaven and earth to bring us into his family and to make us like him. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory and for our great joy. Amen. Well, each week here at Christ Community, we, we celebrate uh, communion together uh, as a reminder of the good news of the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is a sacrifice that is sufficient for all of our sins. If you're new to Christ Community, just let me explain uh, how we do this here at the Brookside Campus. Um, we have four stations around the room. There's two of them up here and two in the back. Um, this one in the back has gluten-free communion elements available, if that's something that you need. And we just uh, gather in groups of four or five around the table, and we take the bread, we dip it into the cup, and then we eat it together. And, and if you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to join him at the table. If you think, man, I know I've got some of this deliberate sin in my life, can I, can I come this morning? And my answer is yes. Come in an act of repentance and say, God, I need your grace. And I receive this as, as, as grace from you. If you haven't embraced Jesus, you're, you're just checking him out. We're really glad you're here. And I just invite you to use this time as a, as a moment to, to think about who he is. Jesus is pursuing you. He loves you. Use this time as a, as a place to, to pray and ask him to show him to yourself. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So when you're ready, come to the Lord's table and taste and touch and see the good news of the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there remains a sacrifice in Jesus for all who come and repent. Come to the table when you're ready.